Exploring the healing and culture building practices of embodied anti-racism. This is With Love and Justice for All with Reverend Ogan Holder and Reverend Kelly Isola. Hi, this is Reverend Ogan and welcome to a special bonus edition of With Love and Justice for All. Our last episode, episode 77, we had a wonderful interview with author and wellness activist Carrie Kelly, author of the book American Detox, The Myth of Wellness and How We Can Truly Heal. It's a book we were studying in our 846 book club and Carrie joined us on the final night of our book club to go further into the discussion, take some questions from participants. And she was gracious enough to allow us to record that episode and the participants of course gave their consent as well. We thought it would make a great follow-up uh, to the last episode. So here it is and please enjoy. You want to start us off Kelly or? Yes. Yes you do. We only have Carrie for about an hour and we always start everything with an embodied practice which I'm still going to do but I want to I'll certainly have it be a little bit shorter because I, I don't want to lose uh, lose as little time and space with Carrie as possible. So as we do, uh, if you're comfortable, close your outer eyes. You can leave them open. Maybe have a soft gaze on something in front of you. Sometimes I have a sacred object in front of me that that has an energy of, of safety, of belonging, of dignity. And by having a gaze on it, it, it evokes uh, that sense within my body. So however it is that works for you, for your body to slowly settle itself into whatever you're sitting on, gives you a sense of being centered or grounded. Whatever way you gently bring your attention and intention to our, our little Zoom space here. And just follow the natural rhythm of the breath. Inhale to fill the body and then exhale, feel it emptying the body. And then let's take a collective act of solidarity, which is a big inhale, and then a big exhale. Let's do that two more times. Collective act of solidarity. We breathe the same air. Inhale and exhale. And one more time together and then gently when you're ready bring your your eyes to the space here in fact i want to unpin us all so that you're all on gallery view and you can just silently Look at the little faces in the boxes. 
Okay. Thank you. Carrie Kelly has the author of the book that we've been working our way through American detox, uh, the myth of wellness and how we can truly heal. And so it's our pleasure, our privilege to have you join us tonight. Um, the uh, Kelly, uh, Carrie, boy, that gets funny when you has the same last name. <laughs> I feel you. Yeah. So Carrie is the founder of Citizen Well. It's a movement that uh, democratizing well-being for all. Um, she's been teaching yoga for over 20 years, is, is known for making waves in the wellness industry, as for those of us here that read the book have now have lots of wonderful stories. That's one of the things I loved about the book was giving your, not in chronological order, but offering up your lived experiences with the different elements of this myth of wellness. Um, um, and she's, as a white woman of privilege, she is committed to dismantling systems of oppression and doing her part to bring about more just and equitable world that we all deserve. Um, so welcome, Carrie. I don't want to take up any more time talking about your bio. Somebody can do Thank Google you. Me. Thank you. I'm so grateful to be here with you all. We, um, so we've been, uh, tonight was, um, uh, the the last night of our our 846 book club and we call it 846 because when we started that was the time that you know that had been said uh um uh that um Derek Chauvin had kneeled on George Floyd's neck when you know when he murdered him that was eight eight minutes and 46 seconds and so came out later in the court proceedings that it was actually longer than that nine minutes and 30 seconds but at the time we we took the 846 uh, book club. So that's where that name comes from, um, for those that weren't aware and to let you know, Carrie. So I guess I wanna, I know that we just have you for about an hour and some people may have some questions, but we thought, um, Ogan and I um, uh, thought that we would start with um, kind of the, did you have, and and jump in here, Ogan, if I get this off base, like, did you have a, a specific outcome or some kind of goal or direction that you know when you wrote the book you know as or during writing the book that you thought it would go or you hoped it would go or mm -hmm. there's that that quote like uh you make plans and god laughs right. so it sort of went like that for me a little bit there's a lot of that in the journey of writing a book um I think I was clear in intention that I wanted to um, I, I wanted to sort of like expose a, a bunch of lies and hooks that are all around us, and uh, and I wanted to do that through the lens of of my own journey, my own like messy, you know, humiliating journey of like of not seeing and then and then waking up and and really just sort of falling apart and falling back together again. I think I didn't anticipate how much more it would unpack for me. That was like that. I mean, I knew I would learn a lot, but I, I there was a lot of messy moments. There was a lot of stuck moments. There was a, a lot of like, like deep digging and excavation of, of my line and of my life. And that, um, you know, you like don't think is necessary until it is. 
And so that was like a big surprise to me. And the thing that I, I find always surprising and also always like the, the greatest, most awesome, awesome gift is that, you know, I started this book with a bunch of questions and I probably ended with more, you know, like you don't, you don't end with more answers or more closure or more neat and tidy solutions. I just, I had more questions and more hunger, quite frankly, and yearning to learn, to learn more and to dig more and to do more. And so, um, you know, that was the assignment, I think, that this book gave me at the end of the journey. And, and it's still, I think, you know, we talked earlier today, it continues to be an assignment for me to like keep listening and to be in community and to learn more and to keep asking myself, like, what's my next? What's the next edge for me? What is the next learning? What is the next uh, phase of my growth? You know, what what do I what what do I not know still? What can I not see? Uh, because I'm you know I'm I'm in this sort of like limited body. And what's my right role and responsibility in sort of the broader project of liberation and well-being for all people? And so. Um, yeah, like the the idea, I think people think you write a book and then like, it's like a, a chapter closed and you're like an expert on the site. Y'all, I felt like the opposite of that. <laughs> like afterwards, I was like, you know, and I'm trying to really embrace this practice of living into the questions and letting more unfold and staying, um, you know, really curious and joyful in the inquiry um, because, you know, so much has been revealed since I, you know, wrote the last page of that book and it's all been really a gift. Yeah, you know, you don't know what you don't know, right? <laughs> yeah. So we may have talked around this when we recorded earlier, but it occurred to me to ask you directly now, now that you know what you know, what is your relationship with with wellness what is your relationship with the wellness industry with with the health industry um how how are you how are you not just seeing it but 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 living it differently than you did before you did this uh you, you did all the research around pulling the book together I mean I you know one of the theories I brought into the project of writing this book was this idea that wellness was deeply political like I knew I knew that that was like an agenda I had <laughs> mm -hmm. in transparency like going in and I was like oh I want to tell the story of how I, I came to understand that and so you know my wellness practice my health practice my spiritual practice has been deeply political for a really long time I often say that like you know my mat became the street you know like I got so much um spiritual stretching in the embodied practice of civil disobedience, right? And advocacy um, and, and marching and solidarity work and mutual aid work. And that was like as much a spiritual teacher for me all as was, you know, learning how to do a downward facing dog or, or meditation on my cushion. And so um, I, I had that practice coming in to writing this book. And what I want to say is that, you know, what I'm learning the hard way right now um, is that, you know, I have to be included in the practice of well-being. And I think in some ways in my journey, I, um, 
you know, I came from like a deeply individualized, if you read the book, you know, this like sort of shaped and socialized way of being in the world. And once I broke out of that, it was like, I was like super politicized and I wanted to march and I wanted to rage against the machine and I wanted to organize. And, and somewhere along the way, I kind of left myself out of my own well-being, mm. um, my own practice. And so, and I think that's also been a part of my, my, my own journey sort of to un unlearn and unpack whiteness has been sort of to reject myself um, and to reject the parts of me, right, that have been socialized into supremacy. And so in my own, in, in this version of healing that I'm in right now, to answer your question, this version of wellness, it's, it's sort of learning how to integrate um, those sort of shadow parts of myself um, into the work. And I want to say in parallel, like actually learning how to integrate and include some of the shadow parts of our, our politic, our body politic into the conversation um, so that we can hold more complexity um, around the, 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 you know, the many different and often conflicting needs that um, are a part of our human family um, and that are and that are often unmet by most of the structures and systems that we move into. And so so anyway, so that like I, I'm really leaning into shadow work right now in my own spiritual practice for myself, like looking, you know, with real like fierce curiosity at the ways in which I, there are parts of me I have left behind and rejected. <laughs> And how, if I really want to feel, I, I actually have to, I have to include those parts of myself and integrate them and compost them and love them back into wholeness. And, um, and I'm not sure I was there for a time, you know, I was just like, you know, I want to be this, I'm going to be this version of myself. And so anyway, so that's where I'm at now. Um, and that's, that's sort of been, um, the focus of my practice, especially since this um the putting out this book um I think because this book was the culmination of like so many parts of my life and then I was I put the book out and I was like now what you know like who am I now and so it really forced me to take a critical eye to um you know my whole my whole being all like all I could think of was the last thing you said Carrie was okay this is out now what and in my mind I went chop wood carry water <laughs> like yeah a hundred percent that's right that's I went absolutely to, right I mean I, and it was like it was like clockwork it, it was like okay that chapter is done you know <clears throat> next yep. right but I, went, I, I was gonna say I what it brought up for me was was the movie soul remember the movie soul uh, oh yeah the, the guy, yeah he was working his whole life to play that one show and then he played the show and he's like what do we do now she's like we come back and do it again tomorrow he's yeah. like wait what uh but that's 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 sort of how it is in this work and this journey there is there is there is no endpoint to to i don't want to say remaking ourselves uncovering ourselves discovering ourselves healing ourselves the the programming is so deep um that that we are on this for a lifetime and and the work is to balance that the 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 deconstructing work, the decolonizing work, the healing work with joy and pleasure and self care and and to 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 make that to make that our journey, um, and not get too in, in bogged down in either one of them because if all we do is yeah. 
you know, joy and pleasure to the extent of nothing else, then, you know, I don't know, what, what good are we, I guess? Um, um, so yeah. yeah, anyone, anyone, let me open up the floor. Is there, is there anyone who thought to share question to ask something you needed clarifying? I don't know. Let's just open the floor and see what happens. Anybody don't all rush at once. <laughs> yes, Pam, go for it. Okay. Um, I, I find it interesting that, um, you're, you mentioned um, sort of uh, putting your your whole old way of knowing yourself, um, the privilege, um, and um, you know the the life that you uh, were were taught aside and not taking care of yourself and realizing that um, you needed that balance. Um, I, I kind of think that for change, you know, um, that is the fear for a lot of people. It's, I'm going to lose myself. Um, uh, what's going to happen to me? Who am I going to be? How am I going to be? <clears throat> and um, I also wonder if that is a common uh, theme when um white people think about confronting these truths and whether or not you've seen that. Oh yeah. Um, thank you, by the way, Pamela, for that question. I think two things were happening for me. I think, um, you know, I think I was shaped to, to judge and reject parts of me that didn't fit into a particular ideal, right? And then when I, and then when I kind of started to wake up to the shadow parts of myself, then I just applied that rejection to that part of myself and didn't see that I was just like kind of replicating the same violence by not sort of, you know, like loving myself into wholeness. And I think um, for white folks, you know, um, and I'm, I'm trying to be more careful about like talking about all white folks as a monolith. So I'm like, cause I, I do think that there's like a, a whole litany of, of, of different experiences and people come from different people. And I'm trying to hold that complexity for myself and for others now, but I do think that the American project propositioned white people to abandon their medicine or their ethnicity or the people and the culture that they came from in order to assimilate, right? Into, I wouldn't even call it belonging, the membership, right? The membership of whiteness uh, within sort of within the American project. Um, and I'm obviously speaking about the US because that's my experience. And so I do think for people who may have not done the work to repair the, their foundation and their roots, right? It, it could feel like there is no ground, like to confront whiteness, which they've, you know, uh, um, you know, understood, right, as identity, belonging, <laughs> you know, um, inclusion, right, that that might feel like the rug has been pulled out from under people. I don't know that people often have the understanding to articulate it in that way. But when I, when I see people like dig their heels in 
You know what I mean? Like literally like think about the roots of the body. They're literally digging their roots in, in resistance. That's intuitively what comes up for me that, that folks don't know who they are beyond the veil. Right. Because, and also because like we're taught not to see beyond the veil. Right. And so it's like, not only do folks not have that felt sense, but then they're completely hoodwinked and distracted to not look. And so I think that's absolutely, and I think, you know, part of, you know, the healing journey for white folks is to repair their life, mm -hmm. you know, if they can, if, you know, not everybody has that, the privilege of information or history or, um, but, but, and if not that, to at least build a new counterculture, build um, a, like a different sense of belonging that exists, a relational sense of belonging that exists behind the myth of whiteness. Um, but people, you know, that, and like, you know, I think also like the false sense of security, like all of these sort of like promises, right. That were sold through with whiteness. I think, um, white folks cling to, um, in really violent ways and terrified ways. I mean, like the fear, right. The fear body is so obvious in our country, um, the fear white body and, so yeah, I do, I think, um, I think like, and you know, if you're like in spiritual sense, like the root, the foundation of the house, right? The the ancestry and lineage, right? Like, like, like somehow building that back up, I can, I think helps white folks betray the myth, step away with more ease. Um, but I don't, I honestly don't know that many white people make that connection. Um, and, and, and we were talking earlier today, often when I work with white folks, the way I, I try to get them there is I ask white folks to reflect on what white supremacy has cost them. Because I think sometimes when we talk a lot about privilege, it only focuses on how white supremacy has rewarded white folks and not what it's cost them, their soul, their spirit, um, the relationship, their sense of belonging, right? Like how, like how, ter how terrible to cling to this fake thing because you have no feet on the ground. Um, yeah. Or they just um, relate to it as something that has harmed other people. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right. Right. And that it's someone else's problem. And so then when white folks engage, it's like we it's like help. It's helping others. Mm -hmm. um, right. They don't have skin in the game or a stake. And yeah, and that's it's it's so um, it's so disconnected from how inherent it is in our body. Mm -hmm. um, which is why people think the healing white folks often think the healing happens out there it's a black box on an instagram feed right? oh we need to do the work out there it's like well of course yeah and <laughs> like y'all got some stuff you know mm -hmm. so yeah yeah thank you thank you for those observations so speaking of speaking of um you said around uh, you don't see a lot of white folks making that connection you made that connection and given what you do in the world i'm assuming you invited other white folk around you to make that connection 
can I also assume that when you first began inviting other white folk to make that connection, it may not have gone well over well, well with them. So talk to me about what it was like for you personally when you started, I won't say share this message, but when mm-hmm. you started speaking to other white folks, when you started to go gather other white folk and say, we got to, we, we got to get our shit together. Um, and I'm assuming you may have experienced some pushback from them. Talk to me about what, a little bit about what that was like, um, about the, the challenges of that around maybe the relationships that it, it may have cost you and your experience of walking through that. And I'm asking that because I know that's a, that's a very, you know, when you, when you talk about what white supremacy costs us, many of the, sometimes what, what gets people stuck especially white bodies is thinking about what speaking out against white supremacy will cost them. Right. In Mm -hmm. terms of connections and relationships. So Mm -hmm. what's your experience Mm -hmm. been like uh, in, in that, in that journey? Mm -hmm. Well, I want to say first that I only came to that inquiry because indigenous folks in my life said, who are you from? Mm. And I said, I'm from Westchester, (laughs) you know, I'm from New York. What do you mean? No. Who are you from? Mm, that's, um, that's powerful. And that, <laughs> yeah, like great. And like, um, and it was like, I want to say it was a beautiful invitation. And, and it, it didn't scare me. It made me like, almost like, like, who am I? I was just sort of like, who am I from? You know? Yeah. Um, and I've had other teachers in my life. I have a dear friend, Mark Gonzalez, who I interview in um, the uh, chapter eight. And we would go around and host these dinner parties and small circles. And um, and there was this one exercise that he would do called the story of us, um, where he would ask people questions like, what is the food that you come from? What is the music that you came from, right? What were the sounds in your house? Um, what were the smells? And so there were ways in And what he was doing is he was just opening the door for people to connect with that part of them that they, they took, they just didn't identify as, you know, beyond or deeper than, you know, there were, there was like, there were roots in those answers. Um, And so it was like a beautiful inquiry that I think helped people like remember and repair some of that amnesia, quite frankly, Um, that's a, so anyway, I just say that because I don't, I don't think that's always, a, um, I don't know oh, if you like to bring people in, I don't know that you always get sort of the, like the resistance because in some ways I think deep down people do, do want to believe that they come from something deeper, something more. I actually believe that people are yearning for that. When I come up against resistance, I, I honestly, I don't, you know, I don't want to like distill it down to one thing. But I do think a predominant limitation in white bodies or or bodies who are affiliated with more kind of dominant uh, social membership groups is a a disembodiment, is an inability to actually be with the discomfort that some of these questions bring forth. and that the knee jerk or the defensiveness, right, is a is a shield to say like, don't mess with my comfort, 
you know, or don't mess with my sense of self-preservation or don't mess with my sense of security um, or my sense of goodness and innocence, right? I was, I was brought up Catholic. So that was like a big part of my shaping. Um, so I think there's like, a, I think that there's um, some capacity building that white bodied folks need to do in order to broaden the felt sense that can hold the discomfort that comes with some of these like existential questions around whiteness and around what it's cost you and what you've lost and who you are beyond it, right? Um, and I also think, and I wanna say this is more of a cultural thing that we also don't, we're not very good in as a collective at conflict. Mm-hmm. And so, so that too, right? Like people are just ducking conflict, like squirming, like all sorts of things to avoid a question that has no answer, to avoid a disagreement, to avoid messing with someone else's comfort level or so anyway so like now you know and I'm a I'm a body person right I'm a and I'm I'm an embodiment facilitator so I'm all I all I do is look at people's bodies and what they do with their bodies and that tells me a lot about what's happening beyond beyond like beyond behind you know the the surface beyond the surface um and so yeah so so I don't know if I'm answering your question I think what I'm saying is I think the areas of opportunity and growth, right? The, the, the limitations on the white body are in the body, in fact. Um, and, and the more that we can help folks actually build the capacity to feel the ickiness, the messiness, the discomfort. That was, I mean, that was like a big reason why I wrote a lot of those stories is I was really just trying to model like, the messy unraveling, like what that, I was trying to do my best to articulate what that feels like so that folks like me could be like, oh, I've had that feeling before and I can survive it. Like, oh, it's going to be okay. It's just discomfort and I can move beyond that. And there's something on the other side, in fact. Um, And so, yeah, so now when I look at like a white body stance that's being, and this is me in my work with white bodies, I want to be clear, I'm not defending what white folks do out in the world. I'm not making I'm not making an excuse for white folks and their behavior and the sort of violent outbursts that we're seeing happen all over the place, completely irrational stuff. Um, but when I work with white folks, that's what I look at. I look at their bodies and then I ask myself, you know, what's ha- what's happening behind there? And then where can how can we make more room for the like the discomfort, right? The discomfort that is inherent to this process, right? You, there's just no yeah. comfortable path through. You just have to get uncomfortable with the ickiness and the complicity and the like, oh shit, like I did that, or I'm a part of that, or I'm, I've am i been contributing to, you have to be able to hold that for yourself or you're just like not gonna be able to move the needle. And so how do we help folks make space for that? And I think the history question is actually a really beautiful, I found it to be like a really loving and joyful and beautiful discovery. Even the parts of my line, you know, there's some really heartbreaking stories of of people in my family that really broke lines. Like they really abandoned their people um, to kind of belong and to fit into the all American dream. And, And it's heartbreaking. But even in that, I just, I found like meaning and hope and, possibility for repair. Um, so anyway, so that that part of the journey, I actually think is really 
um, is really healing um, and provides more of the capacity kind of and resilience we're talking about that helps folks continue. I see Wendy has a question. Well, I determined not to say anything because I haven't read the book, but I did read the first 24 pages and the forward and the introduction. Um, but just what you said here, and it may have been covered in your book, but it seems to me, haven't like the Irish and the Italians especially been taught to be shame, ashamed of who they were? So now you can be white. You don't have to be. They, they, they only, I mean, everyone has sorrow and tragedy and terrible things in their background, but they were taught that all that's all they had. So you trade that in and you can be white like us, right? Instead of, this is what I'm, I'm thinking, you know, um, but I mean, I think that that was the deal, right? You know, you folks came from nothing and now you can be one of us. And, you know, it, was that was that the deal? I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, that's what I'm thinking. I mean, the history that you're talking about is actually even messier because, you know, the England, England invaded, you know, conquered Scotland. You know, so I'm just thinking about like how hurt people hurt people, right? The, the history of people being harmed, right? By supremacy and violence. Um, lives on, you know, and it's like we, we're just like trading violence with one another. Um, I, my ancestry is Irish and Italian. And so there's a history of oppression in my ancestry, right? And yeah, and I don't know this to be like the exact, but you know, Irish people and Italians in particular, like you can literally trace back the moment that Italians became white, right? The moment they were, they were included, right? Um, in white membership when it benefited white power, right? And that's that's been what whiteness has been doing all along is sort of morphing and shape-shifting to continue to accumulate power as necessary. And the same goes for, for Irish folks. So I think, yeah, that understanding that history too um, feels really important um, because I think it both, it both helps in knowing that like if you have a if you have a history of your people being oppressed like that feels like important information in understanding like how you were shaped and how maybe your ancestors were like oh hell yes i don't want to be i want to be i want to i want membership into this thing you know i'm esca i'm escaping oppression and violence um and i think it brings up empathy and compassion for the cycle of violence that's encased inside of oppression and how, like, why would we want to continue? Why would we want to be a part of that? If we come from that and if we part, why? Why not break that cycle um, and opt out, you know, or do something different? And so I thank you for saying that. That's right. Like, you know, there's a really messy history, both in Europe, right, for Irish and Italians and, and all sorts of people, right? Um, and, um, you know, I just read this book called The Trauma of Past by um, this amazing writer, Sen Mori, about like the history of, of caste oppression um, and caste apartheid. And, you know, which I don't often include in my analysis of oppression, but kind of was like pre-colonial, pre-white, you know, like before there was white supremacy, before there was, you know, colonial oppression, there was caste, you know, and, you know, many, many thousands of years old, the beginnings really of supremacy thinking. Anyway, so I'm just, I'm saying that because I think to your point, you know, and, and I think this is an important moment when history is being actively erased from our schools and from our books, right? From our children's education, how essential understanding the very complex and messy history that we are a part of 
is in helping us understand where we are located in all of this and how we got here, how we, how we got to be shaped in this particular way. And also how, you know, I just think also about the history of resilience that also comes with all of our lines and all of our ancestry that, you know, um, that we leave out of the conversation often. And so, um, so thank you for that. And thank you for reading 24 Faces. <laughs> I appreciate you. So I wanted to ask, since we're, um, uh, you know, tonight was the end and chapter eight and, uh, you know, it's titled Reimagining Wellness. Um, so I was just, um, you know, one of, and it's one of the questions, you know, one of the things I love about the book is the personal reflection, but also collective, like everything has the, what do I do and we do. But um, so one of the questions was, what does it mean to reimagine wellness? I'll just let that sit there for you. Yeah, you want that for me? Yes, ma'am. I wanna, I wanna ask that to the whole group, in fact. Um, what I'll say is that I didn't wanna answer that question in this book particularly because of my location and because I was kind of like, you know, after all of the research that I did and, and the whole journey of writing that book and also like reckoning with my own complicity and, in the, and not just the system of wellness. I mean, I think wellness is sort of like the doorway, the portal into this book, but this book really is about dominant culture. And so like whatever space you're in, you can probably see remnants of some of these patterns, right? In your own uh, spiritual spaces or practice spaces or cultural spaces. But I was like, we don't need one more like white lady telling other people what wellness is or redefining it. You know, I was very clear. I didn't want to write like a self-help, like seven steps to reclaim well. Like I was like, yeah, that's not. I Oh, those is. kind of, I'm sorry. Those kind of things have always made me crazy. You know, three simple steps to forgiveness, like for years. I'm and, like, you know, when I was pitching this book, I had a lot of publishing um agencies really push me on that. They were like, we would love just three steps. <laughs> I was like, no, I was like, that is the dominant paradigm. I am not doing that. And so when I was trying to hold how to end the book, right? So I was like, okay, so I did want to give people a like, a, like a, a seed into like what's possible without being like, this is what's possible. And so that's when I thought maybe I just use this entire last note, right? Last chapter, last real estate of the book and turn to the people that I have learned from who are occupying really different locations and also who are embodying the idea of well, well-being and act, the active pursuit of wellness as I learned to understand it in really radical ways. You know, so the way that went down, y'all, is I had to do eight different interviews separate. So it wasn't a conversation. I did eight separate interviews and I asked people, I had like some of the same questions I asked people, but then once I started to hear themes like coming up over and over and over again, I could see where the chapter was going. Right. And it just sort of like came to life that people were kind of saying the same thing. Like there were themes that like uh, and, and like, it almost felt like a, a G, like a GPS, like it was pointing us in a direction of like where we could go um, in the next step of this practice. Um, but I brought in, you know, 
um, a, a, a professor um, at Vassar, an abolitionist professor at Vassar. I brought in a, a movement strategist. I brought in um, a, you know, a, a cultural disruptor. I brought in a, po a spoken word poet. Um, I brought in a Zen master. I mean, like I just brought all of these like really different perspectives, uh, you know, um, uh, a trans activist into the conversation, people who had really different lived experiences than me. And I just asked them the questions. And they wrote the whole last chapter just with their words and their testimony. Um, and, and all I needed to do was sort of pull the threads a little bit and like lift up some of the themes and it all came together. I mean, it was like very nerve wracking, if I'm being honest. I was like, literally the night before my book was due, I was still like, oh, yeah, is this gonna work? You know, and I sent it to my mentor, Taj James, who's one of the people um, in the chapter. And I said, does this work? And he was like, oh my gosh, like we did this, you know, like that all came together like a beautiful symphony. And so, it was a real, it was a real practice, y'all, of like, of trust, of like trusting, you know, I had written up to that point about, you know, 320 words, 320, wait, it was 96,000 words. So I'd written up until that point around like 85,000 words, 320 pages. And so I was kind of like leaving the last word to this, in this mysterious way, like I was like, I don't know what this is going to spit out. I don't know if it's going to fit in the book. And so I was just like in total faith. Um, and I love these people. So I was like, I believe, you know, that these folks are going to bring it home. And, um, and it was like, the, it was like up until the very last second. And, um, and it all just sort of came, it all just wove together um, in this really magical way. And it's honestly my favorite, favorite chapter of the whole book. Um, and, and it was also just like a complete joy um, to kind of get out of the way. That also felt like it was like the practice of like me getting out of the way of the wisdom and of the future, right? Um, and, and sort of like allowing that future to be told by different people, the, you know, a future possibility, a future of, of beingness um, that's, you know, that's different um, than what we've inherited. And, it yeah. was it was so cool well there's a you know and we've talked about it before in our with our groups and workshops and stuff about you know you can't imagine you know a new a new way of being a new world a new you know the reimagining wellness from the consciousness that created the the toxicity and so it's like how do you okay so what imagination am i coming from <laughs> And I think one thing you said that was that was really key to me was the um, when you said when you use the word trust at, at some point I have to trust me and I have to trust another to reimagine it. So the um, another story about how this book came to be y'all was that when I first started writing this book I was writing it like a dissertation. I wanted to write like a, an academic research paper about like a critical, uh, um, you know, um, like a social critique of wellness and also the many dominant systems that we're a part of. And I had an amazing um, uh, um, editor, Alex Capitan, who said, he said, you are not neutral. You cannot write a neutral journalistic. He's like, 
People try to do that, but they, they too are not neutral. Research is not nothing, right? That the human body does is neutral. We are always writing and creating and making, right? And doing from the lens of our lived experience. And so he was the one that had me go back. He was like, you have to put yourself in this book. And I said, well, I don't want to center myself. I don't want, I don't want to center myself in this book because this is about decentering whiteness, right? So I was like, why would I center whiteness? And he said, you actually have to expose it for what it is. And he said, you cannot speak from any other experience but your own. And so, so I, so I did that. And that was very hard because I had to let myself be seen. And I did that throughout the book. And I really wanted to embody, like, if it's like, if you're doing a movement practice, I wanted the last chapter to be a different embodiment, a different formation um, of expression. Um, and so that interview style where I sort of just get out of the way and let other folks felt like um, a modeling of that, like a, a, a practice, like an embodied practice of actually what that looks like. So that felt really important too, right? Um, because it felt important that I was like, you know, I'm gonna take responsibility for my experience in this book, but I don't, but I also want white folks to know that white folks need to get out of the way. <laughs> um, and, and, and be willing to follow and be led, right? By people who actually know how to survive and thrive into the future. And so that last chapter was my way of sort of trying to like write it in such a way that it embodied that stance, if that makes any sense. Yeah. It, it, it does. And, and in addition to getting out of the way, part, uh, part of what you just said that was interesting was the, about letting yourself be seen. And I think, um, you know, many many white bodies in relation to each other don't want to be seen don't want to make a fuss we don't want to get too noisy we don't want to make trouble like we just want to get along there's 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 not there's not really a message and or and in addition to the ones who are who are creating most of the scenes are are probably the ones who shouldn't be right the loudest the, totally the, the ones who are loudest and most insistent on maintaining the systems of oppression and it's like yeah don't want don't want to be those people um so so how does you know what what would you say and i don't know if advice is the word i want to use but how would you speak to that how would you speak to the 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 almost paradox of getting out of the way to be led by others and still showing up and and being seen at the same time. I mean, I love that you use the word paradox because that's what it's exactly what it is, right? And it's also the paradox of like we are individuals that are interdependent, right? Like that yeah. too. <laughs> right? It is like, right, we are all unique individuals, right? And and yet we are entangled. Yes right? Inherently in each other and in this shared world that we're a part of. And so it's, it's similar in that way. You know, um, I, I think, you know, some of like white people's like ducking and getting out of the way or smalling down or, or stepping back is not, um, is not wanting to take responsibility mm. or not wanting to make a mistake. And I just think the stakes are too high for us to play it safe like that. 
Um, and I'm not, I, and that's not to say that white folks should go like being reckless all over the place. I'm not saying that either. I think we need to build capacity and skills and we need to be accountable. But, um, you know, I, I think that, um, I think it's discernment, right? It's like knowing when the time is right for you to step in and take responsibility um, or show up or disrupt or have a hard conversation. And when it's right for you to like, shut the hell up and get out of the way, you know, and, yeah. and like not do the thing that you're conditioned to do, which is to take over control, project manage, you know, dominate everything. Um, so I just think it's, you know, having been in, being in a constant inquiry, um, a constant curiosity around like, what is the right, what is the right stance for this moment? What is the stance that creates the least amount of harm? How can I be in this way that doesn't replicate systems of domination? Um, and that often gives me information about how to show up. And sometimes I get it wrong. Mm. Yeah. And that's a huge piece. And we talk about that a lot here too. Don't, don't be afraid to make mistakes. Some mistakes have cost me a lot. I just want to be like, you know, there's like little mistake making and there's repeating mistakes and there's like big mistake making. And I have mm -hmm. made those. And, you know, when I wrote this book, when, when Alex was like, you have to be in this book, I was like, you know, I had read a lot of books written by white folks that felt a lot, felt very self-congratulatory. <laughs> like, you know, like, here's how I'm a good white person. And let me tell you how to be. And I was like, that's not the book I want to write. I want to write a book about all the ways I've messed this up. I want to just write about, I just want to like expose that and show people that I can expose that and still be in my center and still be wholly human, right? And still be a part of this community. Um, and that I've grown, right? And I've learned from my mistakes. And I've also been a part of processes of repair and accountability. And I so I, that felt really important to expose that part of my journey because I just hadn't read a lot about that from white folks. Um, and so I, so I, you know, I answer your question with kind of like an, I don't know, to be honest, I think, um, I think it's a practice, you know, mm -hmm. and I think it's relational, you know, different relationships in my life afford me different levels of, mm -hmm. um, you know, showing upness, depending on the depth of trust, Rev right. Kelly, right. Depending on like where I am in relationship with folks, you know, if I enter a new room, I'm going to, I'm going to really like be on my best behavior because I'm there to build trust and relationship. Right. And, and like live into kind of like uh, take the practice of taking risks or the um, so I'm trying to learn how to like, let my humanness be seen. Um, but also be skilled, you know? Um, yeah. Um, and and, and I, I just, it's like not a straight answer, you know? Which, which is, I, I don't know, is a perfectly acceptable answer. I say this to people all the time. I don't know. It's yeah. a perfectly acceptable answer uh, I mean, because, because it, 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 it does two things. One, it, it, it brings us all deeper into the question. And two, it also creates uh, a realization of, oh, now we have, now we have space to find the answer like together. Right. And it, and it's doing the thing or not. You, or not. And it's doing the thing that you said you didn't yeah. want the last, the last chapter of the book to be, uh, uh, here's how you fix it. <laughs> right. It's a, uh, we are, we are, we are, 
individuals, but we are also interconnected. So, so part of part of what got us to the mess we're in is the individualism. So let's, if we can't create it from, we can't create the solution from the same consciousness. So perhaps the answer is now found in the collectivism. Let's do it together, sort of deal. Uh, Pam. Okay, I just have a, a comment because I don't want to I, I'm step on anybody else's time have, asking a question, but I'm so glad that you did bring yourself into the book, Carrie, because, um, and I'll tell you, it, when I first started reading it, I didn't relate to you much at all. And then as I was thinking about it, I realized, yes, I was also driven, you know, in, in, uh, in when you're uh, coming up as a, a uh, African-American baby boomer uh, whose parents um, expect a lot of you. And it's like you, you, you get your education first and then you go on in, into the world, you know, education, education, education. And I, I realized that um, as I went through my scholastic career, I really learned how to, to ace getting A's. <laughs> Uh, it it wasn't it was like hit or miss it at, at uh, in grammar school maybe but I really learned how to 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 hit the mark you know and so it was that same drivenness and it was the same type of preparation for this capitalism that we're totally. experiencing so I'm glad you you did <laughs> bring yourself into the book. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And it's funny, people often ask me, like, who did you write this book for? And I'm like, well, I wrote this book for people like me. I didn't expect other people to like resonate with this book. And yet in going around, you know, I've popped into a bunch of book clubs around the country over the last seven and eight months just to listen, like, how is this book landing for people? Like, you know, like, wh like what, what should we do with this book? You know, what do I need to learn? What mistakes did I make? You know, like all of those questions were rolling around for me. And one of the things I have heard is that you know, we're, we're obviously socialized in really different ways, but the machine has the same agenda, <laughs> you know, and, and how powerful that training is to climb, to achieve, to push, you know, to compete. To, um, so I've heard that from a lot of people, right? That that's, been, that's a part of the air that I think we've all been breathing. We're just, we're, we've just been impacted in different ways by it. Thank you so much, Pamela, for that share. Um, Carrie, I want to check in with you on your time. Um, we are at about- an... I have a couple more minutes. All right. Okay. I want to share with everybody that in the spirit of, of mutual aid and solidarity, I'm, I have to go because my, when my best friend had twins. And, um, and so I'm going to help her. She's alone tonight and I'm going to help her put the babies to bed with my, one of my, as an nice. auntie. That's my job, y'all. Nice. One, one, one child is enough work. Two, I, I can't. I don't understand how people do it. Seriously, <laughs> it's swear to so God. Wild. So wild. It's wild. Uh, Wendy. Yeah, this is brief. Uh, there, there are twins all through my family and my extended family. I can think of three oh. right off the top of my head. Three <laughs> groups of twins. But I just want to say that it took a lot for me to show up here not having read the book. I cannot tell you. Uh, I have never been in a class where I've not read the book. And I was thinking of going to the. I, I wow. ordered it. And I could have gotten it had I ordered it on February 1st. It's going to come tomorrow. 
And I said, well, maybe I can go to this other music, this other library and read it. So this is this very thing that you're talking about, you know, this whole thing. Yeah. Of, I have got to be perfect, you know? I mean, you know, so that's all I have to say. And you're welcome just as you are. You know, oh, that's, that's the revolutionary way. I'm so glad you came and like brought yourself to this conversation. Even if you hadn't read 24 pages, you know, you'd have something to contribute. I stole that off the web. That's that. That's the sample they give you. <laughs> Great. Great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my god! No, next time just email me. By the way, I'll just like send you the book. Kelly and great. Owen, please know that that I can just do that next time. <laughs> duly, duly noted. I think yeah. of I think of perfectionism as time traveling because it's it's how you don't be in the present moment. So I'm trying to make whatever's gone on in the past correct it and whatever I'm doing now is to make the future perfect like the outcome. So it's mm -hmm. like time traveling so I can never be you know all of our conversations around being in the present moment and mindfulness and, and perfectionism is you know a toxic time traveling Perfectionism is a, is another one of those themes that I think everyone has resonated with. It's like the weaponry of the, you know, of like the toxic, you know, system and and perfectionism pulls in all the things, right? It's like the scarcity and not enoughness. It's the I don't belong unless I do the thing. It's I mean, it's just like it's everything rolled into one really horrible pattern that society rewards like you know I would get I got like gold medals and pats on the back and you know raises for trying to be perfect which was not which was just trying to not you know it's like you can't be perfect so it's just like you know reaching for the impossible and hustling myself into a frenzy and burning myself out was rewarded by dominant culture and once I started to see that I was like oh I see this game and the irony is we bring thing. we bring that perfectionism, that that harmful toxic perfectionism into the wellness space, right? Doing the oh my god, doing the perfect pose, doing the perfect meditation, like like into spiritual communities. Right, right. No, let me let me tell you, I was writing the the chapter called Perfectionist Anonymous. And I'm writing it and writing it and writing it and writing it. And my editor is like, I think it's done. And I was like, it's not done yet. I can tell it's not done yet. It's <laughs> Something is missing. And he was like, like, and he he was literally like, oh my God, look at you. You know, and I was like, oh, like, but that was really that was an important teacher for me because <clears throat> even as I'm intellectually, right, analyzing and writing about the the harms, the toxicity, the violence of perfectionism, I'm doing perfectionism. <laughs> And that that conundrum, I li I literally think that's like the thing I took most from the book that like, oh mm. my gosh, like the fear body, the survival body, right? The trauma body is going to do the thing no matter what the mind says. And this whole idea that we can just change our minds to change our life is actually completely inadequate. It's not irrelevant, but it's not the whole story. And, and understanding that both like gave me more work to do, but also gave me, um, I want to say there was a like grace in understanding that. Like I had grace mm -hmm. for myself, like, oh, okay. Right. So now when I see myself do that, I'm like, oh, I see what's happening. You know what I mean? Like I can learn how to like self-soothe and instead of beat myself up and go back into some shame loop, right. Which is just more of the same 
toxicity and poison, you know, now I'm learning to just witness myself move into that space and see if I can sort of like re, re, recollect myself into kind of a regulated space again. But it just made me so curious about that intersection, right? Like the somatic implications of our socialization and how, how, how difficult. And it also made me like really question a lot of like therapeutics around this of like, mm. you do this and then you'll be, you know, I'm, I'm like, I don't, I don't know that that's enough, you know, because I keep, you know, I'm, I'm not that my experience is everyone's experience, but my understanding of like how we're, how we're conditioned and socialized mm -hmm. is that it sits deep in the tissues and in the cells. And so it requires like some real depth work yeah. in order to bring it forth and out. And there just aren't surface or shallow paths to this level of work. Um, it's a, it's just an invitation to keep going and to go deeper. Awesome. We say in spiritual communities, the brighter the light, the deeper the shadow. Oh, yeah. So. Oh, yeah. And, you know, there's, you know, I, I have a friend, uh, Pixie Lighthorse, who just wrote a book about the shadows, and she called it gold mining the shadow. Mm -hmm. And I love that, that, right, like there, that, that it's, it's not like a, a, a condemnation, it's not bad, the shadow is not bad, it's an opportunity right. for growth and learning, right, for integration mm -hmm. and composting, right, that which we've struggled with, so that we can create it into something uh, new and anyway, I just like I love that framing. So I'm I'm really trying to learn how to work with that part of myself in that way, and also to like work with parts of our movement in that way. Right. That you know are like real shadowy, and instead of like rejecting it or judging it or telling it to be a certain way, I'm like, okay, how do we invite you into the room and be with you, you know, and yes. sit with you, right, and bear witness and accompany, right. So that we can actually like bring ourselves back into some kind of stasis. Um, and from there, you know, we can do lots of different things. There's just more capacity. And and what we have a tendency to do in our spiritual communities is not outright reject the shadow. We just pretend it doesn't even exist. We just ignore okay. it. We just, we, <laughs> just focus, we just focus on the light and the love and like, yeah, we <laughs> shadow, watch, what shadow? There's only light. Oh, we love it. We do that too. We do that too. <laughs> uh, Lisa, and and then we'll let and then we'll let Carrie go. Okay, sounds great. Uh, can we hear you, Lisa? Hear we cannot you. hear you. Uh, you're unmuted, but for some reason we're not getting your audio. So, uh, nope, got nothing. Sorry, what's happening there? Uh, any? Keep fiddling with it. Keep fiddling with it. We'll see what happens. Anyone else has any 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 final thing they want to share? Or maybe type real fast. Type real fast in chat. Okay. Um, if you type it into the chat, I'll look at it, Lisa. Um, okay. Um, in case she's doing that, while she's doing that, if she's doing that, um, anyone else have questions, thoughts, comments, queries, anything um, to share? Looks like Lisa's typing furiously. Yeah. That's what I was asking, <laughs> and anyone else while she was typing. <laughs> I, I'll say while Lisa's typing that, I, I, I just want to like show some gratitude to all of you for A, reading the book. That that still is something, y'all, that like kind of takes my breath away. You know, like you write a book and you put it out into the world, and the first time someone came was like, you know, they came to me with like 
post-its in the book. And I was like, and they were like, I read your book. And I was like, you read my book? Like, I, just, I don't know what I was expecting. I just think, I just thought it would just go into the ethers and I could just, and then people read it. And then I realized, yeah. oh my God, they know everything about me. So <laughs> I, oh, I still to this day get like butterflies when I, I, when people, when people have read my words. And so I just, I just want to say like, thank you. And like, I'm accessible and like here for feedback, for ideas, for questions that come up for you. So, cause that, I feel like that's just gonna um, bring the conversation forth even more. Okay, Lisa, the first unity sermon I ever heard actually acknowledge the shadow and my vision for well-being would be to accept and love all of us, the dark and the light, the whole of us. Thank you for addressing it. Yeah, that would be mine too. Thank you so much, Lisa, for that. Awesome. Thank you, Carrie, again. Such and a blessing to be here with you all. Thank you for Thank you. My best to the twins and their mother and their father. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I will pass that along for sure. Um, Y'all have an amazing day. Thank you so much for your kindness and your generosity. Let me know when I can come back in and visit. Always. Well, Thank, yes. you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for sharing your time and your presence uh, with us. It's, it's been a beautiful day with you too. We'll see you on the path. That's right. I hope so. Have a good Take night. Take care, everybody. Bye. Bye.